Welcome to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center and Associate Professor of Urology at the UW, featuring important topics dealing with men's health, including prostate cancer and erectile dysfunction. Here's your host, Neil Scott. Welcome to the April edition of Men's Health Monthly, heard on the last Tuesday of every month. 8 p.m. on Sports Radio 950 KJR, and at 7.30 a.m. on Seattle's classic rock station, 102.5 KZOK. I'm Neil Scott. My co-host is Dr. Tom Walsh, renowned teacher, surgeon, clinician, and the director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center. And in this month's edition of the program, we're going to take a deep dive below the belt to explore the many aspects of erectile dysfunction likely to affect all men at some point in their lives. Now, if you are experiencing ED, hopefully this program will give you some much-needed, reliable, factual information and some really good resources to help you find the treatment that works best for you. Once again this month, we are sheltering in place due to the corona COVID-19 virus. I'm broadcasting from my home studio, and my co-host, Dr. Tom Walsh, is also sheltering in place at his office at the University of Washington. Before we get into our program, I want to ask you, Tom, about the Men's Health Center and how you are dealing with the COVID-19 restrictions. Are you still open? Do you do telehealth now? How do you manage your caseload of patients during the lockdown? Neil, well, let me start by saying it's good to hear your voice. The Men's Health Center at UW remains open for business, but seeing a little different clientele than we used to and seeing them in a little different way than we used to. While we remain open for business, we're really encouraging our patients to convert what would be an in-person healthcare visit to a telemedicine visit. Many of the different things for which we guide patients, diagnoses that we make, treatments that we prescribe, We can learn as much about a patient by looking at them on a camera and talking to them, and that's the lion's share of what we are doing today, and that allows patients to to remain safely in their homes and our providers and our staff to remain safely in place when they can. If you're experiencing an urgent healthcare condition that would be managed at a place like the Men's Health Center, we do have room for you and we do have safe protocols that allow you to be seen safely. You mentioned something really important that a lot of our patients do need face-to-face care and surgical treatments. Uh, Our plans are to begin initiating and slowly rolling out that care in the middle of May, but it's going to depend upon what our public health officials tell us. We are joined this month by Dr. Joe Alucal. He is a board-certified urologist at Columbia Irving Medical Center in New York City and a radio personality in his own right. Having hosted a men's health show on Sirius XM Radio, he joins us from New York City. And as Governor Cuomo of New York says, and by the way, I listen to his press briefings every morning, New Yorkers are tough, smart, disciplined, and loving during the COVID crisis. Welcome, Dr. Alucal. How are things on the front lines of the pandemic in New York City? Thank you, Neil, and, and thanks, Dr. Walsh. Happy to, uh, to be here with you. Yes, it's been tough here. We are trying as a state and a city to uh, to move forward and to take care of those stricken with COVID-19 infection as best as we can. It's particularly hard work at our medical center. We're doing what we can every day. I can't express enough gratitude for 
all the well wishes that we receive as healthcare workers, particularly in uh, in New York City from the general population. It's really been a joy to observe that. Our topic this month is erectile dysfunction, an area in which you are an expert. My co-host, Dr. Walsh, has some questions for you, Dr. Lucco. Joe, thank you so much for being here. And, you know, obviously you and I have been friends for many years and we lead similar careers on different coasts. One of the reasons that we really wanted to reach out to you, coming from a state like New York, where similar to Washington State, where we are, where we were some of the first to be affected by this crisis and the rules for men and their partners to stay at home. You know, we felt like there were some things that men may be experiencing below the belt that may be even more at the forefront. And while we realize that it's a privilege for men to have their good health in this relatively dire time, there are some that are probably generating a lot of questions with more time on their hands at home. In your experience with telemedicine at Columbia, are you seeing more men presenting with things that we may be thinking about as elective, but really, really important, like ED? Certainly. I'd make the point that while Erectile dysfunction is one of those things that can be embarrassing to patients. They don't want to talk about it. They can sort of sweep it under the rug when they're thinking about it themselves and say, well, I don't really need to see the doctor about that. And I'm imagining that's going to be an embarrassing interaction. I don't really want to talk to him or her about this problem. I'm just going to put it off. We're always trying to remind people, well, look, it is something medically important. It tells us something about the patient's overall health. There are patients in whom it helps us to identify, say, their future risk of something like a heart attack or a stroke. So I'm always trying to encourage people to get this problem checked out. Now, I completely agree with you that since the pandemic's begun, there's a lot more people reaching out via telemedicine visits, and that's all we're able to offer people here at Columbia University right now ourselves. It does always remind me how important it is to patients. You know, they, they really do. You know, it's something that's at the top of a lot of guys' list in terms of, hey, I need to get that fixed. You've touched on something that's really important. I'm going to ask you to dig a little deeper. You talked about sort of this window into a man's cardiovascular fitness. What is your approach to these patients that you see? Let's take a, an example patient, a 52-year-old man presenting to you with a new concern of, of ED. How might you approach that particular patient? Let's try and imagine him both before and after the pandemic. And so maybe the first and most important things that I'm going to do when I'm talking to this guy are the things we teach our medical students to do, to just take a history from the patient and to ask him some simple questions and to do a thorough examination. Many times at the end of that, the questions you've asked have included things like, how long have you had this problem for? What other things have you tried for this problem that have or haven't worked Do you have other medical conditions? What can you tell me about your existing doctors? Usually those four questions get me pretty far down along the road in terms of figuring out how sick this guy may or may not be otherwise. Someone who tells me, doctor, I have both a good primary care doctor and a cardiologist who I see once or twice a year. I've seen both those people recently and they assure me everything's well and I've had this problem just for the past few months. You know, I I might be willing to sort of turn off the three alarm you know, on top of the fire truck. The guy who tells me I've never seen another doctor at 52, or at least since I was, you know, college age, and I've been healthy as a horse for years, I get a little more worried that maybe his body is trying to tell me something that he needs to know. And in those cases, follow-up questions like, what is your family history of heart disease? Do you now or did you ever smoke? How much exercise do you regularly get? Those kinds of things become important 
risk stratifiers for me. They help me to know how much this guy really does need to maybe be seeing a cardiologist instead of me as a frontline provider. You know, someone who told me I'm 52 and have no doctors, I'd say to him, hey, man, I'd love to help you solve this problem. But without us sort of knowing your overall health, it's probably not my brightest idea to start throwing medications at you, for example. What can we do to get you on the same kind of visit with a primary care doctor or cardiologist? And let's see how much of a workup we can do to help figure out how healthy you are without maybe dragging you into the medical center at this particularly you know, difficult time. That really echoes sort of our approach to things on this coast as well. In spite of what is going on around us, believe it or not, this is a really great time in history to become connected to care and connected to your own health. And that patient that you just described, that's the kind of patient that I would say in our region, I'd say, hey, go get a telemedicine visit with a primary care provider. Uh, You know, here at UW, you can do it at uwmedicine.org. You can get that intake, you can begin testing, and you can make a plan for your own future and understanding about your own cardiovascular health, your risk for diabetes, so on and so forth. Does it take a long time, Tom, to set that appointment up? No, it doesn't take any time at all. Uh, And there's a couple of different ways to do it. I mean, for those who are savvy and like to just uh, have the internet at their fingertips, you can do it online at uwmedicine.org. You can also just make a quick call, 206 520 If you're just joining us, our special guest on this month's edition of Men's Health Monthly is Dr. Joe Aluko from Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City. And my co-host, of course, is Dr. Tom Walsh. Dr. Aluko, what is the role or the involvement, and, and to what degree, of the significant other in this process? I think the visits that I find sort of most high yield are oftentimes the one where the, the patient's partner accompanies them. I think those are usually the situations where you can get a real honest assessment of how bad the problem is in terms of the patient's sexual dysfunction. And as well, a lot of times you'll get more buy-in, I hate to say it, from the partner in terms of what can we do to keep the patient healthy. Okay, so the man with the complaint who's in front of you and is saying, you know, it doesn't work as well as it used to in terms of the bedroom doc. Many, many times it's the partner sitting next to him who's who's absolutely willing and able to get that patient in front of other doctors to reiterate to that patient, hey, you know, this is important to your overall health. And to express to that patient lovingly, hey, I want you around. You know, I I think uh, in this time of the pandemic, people are a lot more willing to discuss issues of their mortality. Well, there's an awful lot of really deeply committed and caring couples who I've been having these phone visits these past few weeks, and, and I'm reminded again how important it is to somebody's health to have someone standing next to them saying, hey, I want to help take care of you. Certainly, uh, people see the ads on TV for the, you know, the various prescription drugs. Are you seeing more men, uh, more couples stepping up and coming in and going across that bridge from embarrassment to reality to find a treatment? This is clearly an epidemic problem in our country. And a doctor like Dr. Walsh or myself, we can open up a schedule and fill it with patients who have these complaints every day. And I would pass that information along to other patients to help them know a few things. One is, you know, you're not alone. I think a lot of times the stigma has to do with people believing they're the only person who has this problem. Two is the reason that a doctor like Dr. Walsh or myself is busy is that we do have great treatment options for this. This represents a really big change from, you know, 30, 40 years ago when I would have had to honestly say, look, we don't have great treatment options for this problem in many cases. Patients aren't willing to talk about it. There's not a great public awareness of these being issues that anybody is discussing in any setting at all. 
And so I think things have really changed a ton in terms of us being able to help people with this problem. And in turn, uh, more and more people are willing to come in and talk to us. Now, we know it's a common problem. You know, it's, it's probably something around 40 to 50 percent of men between the ages of 40 and 60 who are going to endorse this problem in a doctor's office. If the doctor asks them, do you have some sort of sexual function problem that you'd like to get fixed? About half of them are going to say yes. That is a large number of patients. And twofold goal for those patients has to be offering them good treatments that can, that can work, that can help them, and as well helping them stay healthy as they get older. You know, one of the things that I find most rewarding about this arena of practice is that the moment I walk into a clinic room or I walk into a virtual medical visit, usually the first thing I can tell somebody who I'm seeing with an erectile dysfunction problem is that we can solve it. There are many yeah. things in medicine that we can't fix, that we can't cure. This is one that we can cure or fix every time. It's really a matter of finding the right paradigm for the right patient. What's the approach that you would generally take for a patient who you're seeing with a new concern of ED? This is a solvable problem. I say that all the time to people. I want them to understand that I think it helps them to be less afraid about what's going to happen and as well to feel reassured that they made the choice to come in. Uh, let's go back to the 52-year-old you mentioned, and again, imagine him having regular medical care and, and nothing that makes me worried about him in terms of risk factors. If he's never tried any treatments before, in all likelihood, I'm going to start him uh, with a trial of medications like Viagra or Cialis. We call these PDE5 inhibitors. These are drugs that are designed to amplify what happens in the body when the patient is supposed to get an erection. And so as a result of that amplification, there should be more blood flow into the penis. And as a result of that, a better erection or a better ability on the part of the patient to keep an erection. There's some simple rules that we got to talk to people about before they try those drugs. A small subset of patients who can't safely take those drugs because they're on other medications that might interact with the drug in question. And then as well, some rules in terms of how do you take it? I, I can't tell you how many patients over the years who've told me, doctor, you gave me that stuff, but it didn't work. And I'll ask the patient, well, what did you do? Oh, I took some of it and then I turned on the ball game. And then I'll tell them, look, unless this was the most exciting ball game you're ever going to imagine, you weren't going to get an erection. You have to take the medication on an, on an empty stomach. And then within the, the appropriate window of time, while it's in your system, you have to do something sexually stimulating. And so, yes, on it the other not, side of that. It is not a light switch, right? It's not take a pill no, and get an erection. That's correct. You know, I mean, especially, you know, when it comes to our local teams, you know, most of the time I'm able to make some sort of joke involving the Mets in that situation that gets people laughing. <laughs> the point being that there's not some circumstance where you're sitting there with an erection and it's the seventh inning stretch. You know, you, you do have to be doing something to stimulate yourself sexually, either in terms of where your brain's at and then as well where your penis is at. It's not uncommon that you or I will meet somebody who has either tried these medications, either found them untoward for some reason, or found that they just didn't work adequately for them or reliable for them. Uh, I'm curious what your experience is and what the next go-to is or how you counsel them about this. So the patient who's come back in and told me, well, I've tried these medications correctly on a few different occasions, Doc. I've tried more than one of these medications in this family, and it's not worked. It's really not worked to any meaningful degree. Usually at that point, I'm thinking about a couple things. One is I probably am going to suggest to the patient some more diagnostic testing 
That could include an ultrasound to assess for blood flow in the penis, blood testing that might tell me about the patient's hormonal state. Many patients, it's going to be both of those tests. In parallel to that, I'm going to start talking to the patient about treatments that are sort of more localized and, uh, honestly speaking, a little bit more invasive. Either things like a very tiny, almost painless needle injection to the penis that should result in an erection if there's good blood flow downstairs. And that's different from the pills. The patient who injects himself with that stuff, if it's working, he could turn on the ball game and sit there with an erection until the seventh inning. Or you can start talking to patients about surgical options. You know, one of the things that I love uh, to tell my patients, Joe, is that this is a really unique arena of treatment. And it's one of those arenas where not only does the treatment that we prescribe need to work, not only does it need to function, but patients actually need to enjoy using it. Yeah. Uh, if we give somebody a treatment that causes a great uh, sexual function response, but the act of using it is anxiety-provoking or there's a side effect that is anxiety-provoking or not tenable, because if, if you yeah. don't enjoy using it for this purpose, you just won't use what's it. What's the and, point? And that defies, what's the point, exactly? If you've just joined us, I'm Neil Scott, along with my co-host, Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the UW Men's Health Center. We're talking this month about an issue that's of importance to all men, erectile dysfunction. We are taking a deep dive into ED, what it is, how it can be successfully treated. We're going to take a short time out. We'll be back after this message with more of Dr. Tom Walsh and Dr. Alukal. Did you know that diabetes, heart disease, and prostate cancer procedures can contribute to erectile dysfunction? Many men aren't aware of this or of all the treatment options that a board-certified urologist can offer. Understand your options and learn where you can find an ED specialist in Seattle to help. Visit edcure.org to get the facts and find a urologist who can offer treatment options that work when pills and injections don't. Again, that's edcure.org. Welcome back once again to Men's Health Monthly. I'm Neil Scott. We are joined this month by Dr. Joe Alucal. He is from New York City. He is uh, at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center, kind enough to take some time out of his busy schedule to join us. Dr. Alucal, what about the danger of trying to be your own physician? You, you know, seeing the ads on TV that imply no doctor visits needed, uh, you know, the easier, softer way, no pun intended, where you fill out a form and meds will be discreetly delivered to your mailbox, no muss, no fuss. What's the danger of that? I'm always trying to remind people that I think that's a bad idea. When we're talking about men and the doctor, there is no demographic that utilizes healthcare less than men between the ages of 18 and 45, followed closely by men between the ages of uh, 45, 46, and 69. So, you know, what we're talking about is this kind of uphill battle to get men in to see the doctor. When you talk about that with lay people, they'll tell you all the time. Patients will willfully admit it. They'll tell you, you know, man, I try and stay away from the doc. And then Significant others will say it all the time. I twist his arm all day long to try and get him to go in and see the doctor, and he just absolutely couldn't be bothered. And so I think the stuff you're talking about, the online resources, which I'm not going to name because I don't want to confuse the issue, or you know, even crazier, there's stuff like guys telling me, oh, you know, I went and bought something at the corner store, or I get it from my buddy who I play golf with once a month. You know, I'm always asking those people, hey look, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but don't you think it's worth your while to try and figure out whether or not you're healthy otherwise? But then in addition to that, maybe I can offer you treatments that are more effective, have fewer side effects that you're going to be happier with. In the course of us going through this process, we can figure this out. 
So I really want to try and make people feel comfortable being in front of the doctor. I can help them solve their problem in the best fashion possible. And then alongside that, I want to try and keep them healthier. I don't think some of the websites that are, are sending medication to people in their homes, even if you're able to, on that website, have a brief phone call with the physician who might screen you for five moments, but you can never see them. There's no laboratory testing offered. I don't think that does enough to identify the people in this group who really do have health issues that they need to know about. Dr. Walsh? I think it's also really important to point out that going through a men's health center, whether it be at uh, Columbia Presbyterian or UW Medicine, it's certainly a more thorough path. And what it engages is the ability to open up the full spectrum of care. It connects you with understanding about your health. And I always like to point out that 80% of what us doctors do is educate our patients. I think that sometimes there's a fear that we're here merely to prescribe or to poke or to prod, but really what we do is educate. And I think that that education, especially for men in the demographics that Dr. Lukel is talking about, is just so critical. Seeing somebody who has the full toolbox available to them to help a patient get to where they need to be is going to get them there a lot faster. We've talked about the pills. We talked about the needles. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what I consider to be the best kept secret in men's sexual health, which is the penile implant. What is it and what are the risks or the dangers or the uh, good things that come from that? Penile implant surgery in my practice uh, and in Dr. Walsh's practice as well is an outpatient procedure done in about 30 to 45 minutes where the patient's got to spend either the morning or the afternoon in the hospital. Uh, they're going to show up, they're going to get evaluated, they'll get brought into a procedural room, and then afterwards they'll have a a brief recovery. And then when we know that they're ready to go home, uh, they're free to go home that day in the overwhelming majority of cases. Patients see me back after a couple weeks, and then uh, within another couple weeks, they're almost always ready to use their device. What have we done? We've made a a tiny opening somewhere on or around the genitals and put in what boils down to a hydraulic device, a series of balloons and tubes filled with salt water that the patient can then inflate when they want to have an erection through the use of a small pump in their scrotum that feels like a third testicle. It's very easy for patients to learn how to use that pump. Uh, When they're done having sex and they want to deflate the device, they release a valve on the pump and the balloons in their penis empty, the water empties from them, and and they go about their business. This is done uh, by surgeons like ourselves tens of thousands of times every year in the United States with a patient satisfaction rating of better than 90%. So if you ask the patient simple questions like, if you were given the chance to do this again, would you do so, or would you recommend this to a close friend? Nine out of 10 guys are going to say yes. People are very, very happy with this decision when they've chosen to go down this road and and when everything's done in terms of their recovery. What are the downsides? People are very worried about the risk of getting an infection at the time of the the procedure. You know, it is a a foreign object that we're putting in there. So if it gets infected, you know, many times you're going to be talking to the patient about having to take the existing infected device out. And maybe if you're lucky, putting in a new device at the same time, The good news is we have the infection rates down to less than 1%, which is a great number. When these devices first started being used in the 70s and 80s, that rate was as high as 25%. And now we're talking about 99 guys out of 100 don't get an infection. So I'm always trying to remind people that to help them be less afraid about this as a possibility. And the further good news is that it's covered by many insurance policies and by Medicare. Yes, many, many, many times. 
the overwhelming majority of patients, this is going to be a covered procedure, which people are always pleasantly surprised by. Next is the fact I want people to understand, you know, look, the, the thing is just a series of balloons and two soul of water. One of these days is going to spring a leak. And so the average lifespan of the device is give or take 10 years. And somebody who, you know, say he's 60 years old and happily gets 20 years out of his device, he beats the average. If he comes in and tells me, doctor, you know, I've barely been using this thing on my birthday for the past couple of years, but this year my birthday rolled around and it's obvious it doesn't work anymore. My wife and I don't care. Do I have to do anything about this? I tell him no. You know, it's safe to remain in his body until the day he dies. It's not dangerous to him in that case whatsoever. But the patient who tells me, doctor, we did this two years ago, and I don't know what's happened, but it's obvious to me this past weekend it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't inflate. That patient, if he wants to continue to be sexually active, we have to do the procedure again. The irreversibility of that is one thing I do want patients to understand before they make this choice. Over the years, I've had to navigate that discussion with so many people, people who came in and are like, oh, man, it finally broke. I got to do this again. And it ends up being fine. It's, it's always going to be fine. But I just I do want patients to understand that before they make the choice to, to move forward with it. For those patients that have successfully navigated this, what, what do they like best about something like the implant as compared to some of the other treatments we've talked about? Uh, I, I think the number one thing that people talk about is the ease of use. So some of the things we alluded to, things like taking a pill before sexual activity, that requires timing. It's not spontaneous. Uh, using the injections, that's certainly not spontaneous. Someone would tell me something like, doctor, you know, I, I wanted to take a, a two-week vacation with my partner, but then I had to try and take this injectable stuff with us. And, you know, it's got to be kept cold. It was really difficult. And you guys are telling me you don't want me doing it more than once a day, but I wanted to have sex more than once a day. So finally, I, I decided to get an implant. And I've been thrilled ever since then. You know, we go on vacation that can use it whenever I want to, however often I want to, for as long as I want to. And I think that actually contributes a ton to those patient satisfaction numbers I was talking about. People are just so happy to have something back that really is basically the sex life they remember when they were young and had no other medical issues, that, that when they wanted to have sex, they could have sex. And so I think the fact that it, it recreates that in somebody's life when they think they've lost that, that's the thing that's most thrilling for patients. It really is a permanent solution to erectile dysfunction. It is. I'll tell you, I have absolutely lost count of people over the years who told me, doctor, my only regret, you suggested this to me for the first time a year ago, two years ago, my only regret was that I didn't take you up on it the very first day we spoke about it. And I get it. It feels to patients like they're jumping out of an airplane. It feels like a big decision. And I don't ever want to rush anybody into it, but I do want to remind them and encourage them, hey, this is a great option that a ton of patients over the years have been really, really happy with. And I just hope you think about it seriously. And when you're ready to pull the trigger on it, you let me know. I find both patients and providers sort of think of this as a newfangled, you know, they've heard about it and they think, wow, this has been around a lot longer than Viagra and Cialis. We have a longer track record with it. So I'm always trying to get people to understand, look, we, we have an understanding of the fundamental principles of this procedure that's probably 40, 50 years old. But believe me, the devices we're using, they are 21st century devices. They've been made with a tremendously high degree of research in terms of what are all the things we can do to make this thing last as long as is possible, to minimize infection risk, to make it easy for the patient to handle, to make it easy for the surgeon to put in. One thing I wanted to ask Dr. Aluko, how does it affect the size of the penis? Can you get a bigger penis? So I think if you were going to take the group of guys who were going to say, I didn't want to do this again, or I wouldn't do this again, or I wouldn't recommend it to a friend, 
Many of those guys, the one complaint you might hear is something relating to the size of their erect penis. And I, I think there's a few reasons for that. One is many, many times I believe that we're all competing with what the patient recalls. You know, the way he recalls the size of his erections from when he was 20 or 25, different from the size of his erections, I hate to say it, when he's 60, 65, or 70. I tell people, look, I can really only put in there something about as big as what God's given you to work with right now. So if you take your penis and stretch it out from your body as far as you can, that's about as big a device as I can put in there. I'm not going to try and cheat in the wrong direction and short you on anything. But if I put in a device that was too big, you know, imagine a suit that's been tailored for a 150-pound man. Now, imagine trying to put a 300-pound man inside of that suit. You can't. So, like, you know, this is in response to almost every patient making the same joke. Doc, I want you to put in the biggest model the company makes, okay? And I go, well, I, what I am going to do while we're in the procedure room is take a measurement of exactly how long your penis is both inside your body and out, and we'll give you a device that's tailored to your body. I've watched people over the years, and, and I've done more than a 1,000 of these now, who, you know, in the first few months after the procedure, are like, Doc, I wish it was bigger. And then as time goes on, I think two things happen. One is they realize that it doesn't need to be any bigger than it is. And two is, to some small extent, over time, it does stretch their body back out a little bit. And I think that's usually happening somewhere in kind of the six to 12 month range as they're using it more and they're getting more used to it. And so I'd remind them, look, nine out of 10 guys, and that includes some below average guys in terms of penis size, are happy with this device in terms of their ability to function and have sex. So Try and keep an open mind and be positive about that. And I bet you it's going to be something where you're telling me in a few months or a year, hey, man, you're absolutely right. This thing works great. We've talked a lot about ED today, and we've talked a lot about treatment. Some great resources for patients, vetted resources, the sexhealthmatters.org website. And for those who are interested in learning more about the device itself that Dr. Lukal has referred to, edcure.org is another huge resource. That's edcure.org. Yeah, for those men who are seeking an appointment to talk about this, uh, we'd love to see you either in a telemedicine visit or we'd love to see you in the Men's Health Center. And those appointments are easily made by going to uwmedicine.org and searching Men's Health or by calling 206-520-5000 for an appointment. That wraps up the April edition of Men's Health Monthly, featuring Dr. Joe Alucal this month from Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Men's Health Monthly airs on the last Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m. on Sports Radio 950 KJR, and on the last Sunday of the month at 7.30 a.m. on 102.5 KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station. Until next time, on behalf of my co-host, Dr. Walsh, and our guest, Dr. Joe Alucal, I'm Neil Scott, wishing you good health and good sense in matters relating to men's health. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Washington and Director of the UW Men's Health Center, and your host, Neil Scott.